Everything that exists has its purpose to bring God glory. For the church, the purpose has always been the same. It's employing the word of God in the making of disciples for the glory of God. While we seek to live out this purpose, we affirm the identity of four organic evidences into a simple statement. By the grace of God, we desire to glorify Him by magnifying His Word to develop disciples who think biblically, live missionally, give generously, and love sacrificially. video right there is not just our sermon bumper as it's uh, as it's called but also the exact topic that we are spending five weeks on here at McGregor. Normally, we would be walking through a book of the Bible and going from the first verse to the last verse, and we will jump right back into that when we are done with this series. But we are spending five weeks walking through that purpose statement, the new purpose statement that's going to impact everything we do here at McGregor. It's going to impact this service. It's going to impact life groups, serving. All of it is going to be wrapped around and impacted and influenced by the clarity that has been brought to our church body. And now we understand as a church that it is not um, up to us to define our own purpose, right? We've talked about that um, over and over again about how the creator defines the purpose for the creation. And it's true when it comes to the the church as well. You know, we don't get to to sit around and just say, okay, we're gonna be about this or we're gonna be about that and we're gonna define what our mission is. We've been given a mission, It's been laid out very clearly in scripture that we are supposed to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. And so this purpose statement is simply our clarity brought to that mission. You see, because you can go forth and make disciples in a lot of different ways. It can look differently, but, but we do need to bring some clarity to exactly how we're going to do that here at McGregor. And what it means to us? How are we going to measure our discipleship? And so if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go online and listen to Pastor Russell's message where he launched into this series and explained a lot of the background to exactly what this purpose statement means and also what it means for us. But let's review it real quick. The purpose statement is, by God's grace, we desire to glorify him by magnifying his word to develop disciples who... And there's four measures. Think biblically, live missionally, give generously, and love sacrificially. Today, we are going to focus on that first measure. Think biblically. These measures, we're calling them measures for a reason. This is how we're going to measure our success in discipleship. This is how we're going to measure our progress as believers in this church. They will be our goal to see realized in the lives of all of our people. They will be what we talk about in terms of how are we doing. They'll be what life group leaders get around and and discuss on how are we going to accomplish this to a greater degree. Today, it's think biblically. I think biblically um, can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. So we're gonna bring some clarity to that this morning. We're essentially gonna walk through four questions. First off, the importance of it. Then how how does that work? Uh, Then some examples. And then how do we know when we get there? You see, our first question, how important is it to think biblically? The answer I have for you this morning is our thinking is the front line of our spiritual battle. Our thinking, our mind is the front line of our spiritual battle. 
We think a lot about our actions and what we should do to, uh, to bring glory to God. And yet it all starts up here. You may not think about how easily impacted or, or how greatly impacted your mind can be. I think we have to look no further than the last time you went to a movie <laughs> to understand how that works. I don't know about y'all, we don't go to the theaters all that often, but over the years, we've been to all kinds of different movies. I'm sure you have as well. And if you've ever been to like a spy thriller, you know, kind of movie where someone's being chased and they're trying to get him and he's fighting back and all that, you probably walk out of that theater a little bit differently than you walked in. Maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think I'm not. I don't think I am. You see, when I walk into that movie, I'm, I'm just, I guess, my normal, right? Whatever that is, however it's been impacted before that. But when I leave that movie, I see the world differently. When I walk out of that theater and I turn to walk down that hallway, I see the people around me a little bit differently. They're potential assassins. <laughs> I see a dark corner, not just as where there might be a spider or something, but as a place where someone might be hiding. And not only that, if someone's going to jump out from behind that corner, I know how to take care of them because I watched a movie. We joke, but it's what's going on in our minds, right? When you watch a horror film, you see the world a little bit differently. When you watch a rom-com, you see the world a little bit differently. Our minds, our thinking is influenced and impacted by what we've just observed and allowed to go into it. And it's impacted on a regular basis. There's two aspects of that I think we need to make sure we understand. One is that it can be a very powerful thing. Our thinking can be impacted greatly, but it's also fleeting, you don't usually wake up the next morning still in spy world. You don't hold on to that forever. It gets pushed out by something else and it's a fleeting kind of thing. The hope is that we as believers, as we develop in our lives with Christ, as we develop in discipleship, we think biblically and our minds are impacted just like that movie in terms of how we interpret the world around us based on the biblical truth and knowledge that we have developed. So how does that work? How can we develop in our ability to think biblically? Uh, the answer um, it comes from Romans 12, one and two. If you wanna turn your Bibles there, Romans is one of the, <laughs> the books we'll be in this morning, the, the primary one. Um, we'll have a lot of verses on the screen as I'm gonna be bouncing around quite a bit. But Renew, the way we can do that is by renewing our minds regularly through prayer and scripture. Renewing our minds regularly through prayer and scripture. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He appeals to them based on everything he's just communicated. If you've, ever, if you've ever read Romans, you know that the first 11 chapters is deep theology, and then he talks about, okay, now what? And this is a transition right here in the very beginning of Romans 12. He appeals to them based on what he's just communicated. He says, by the mercies of God, almost the same as our, by God's grace. That the desire should be to glorify him by our spiritual worship, by our lives being a living sacrifice. 
That when we become Christians, when we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we leave our lives aside. Not like we step out in some kind of other dimension. What I mean is we lay ourselves down at the cross. We deny ourselves and we follow after him. And our lives are supposed to be a living sacrifice to our Lord and Savior. The one whom we're falling more and more in love with every week with a greater and greater desire as a result to then bring him glory. He gives a little bit of an answer of how you do that. Do not be conformed to this world. If it wasn't possible for us to conform to the world, he wouldn't say, don't do it. Obviously that's an option that we as Christians are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And yet we can choose to conform ourselves to our surroundings. We can conform our lives and our actions to the culture around us. But we don't have to. We can be transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds. And that because we've renewed our minds, our lives are transformed and we have a filter through which to view the world in front of us so that we know what God's will is. How do you know God's will in your life? You read the word and you apply what you learn. You see the world through the truth of scripture. And as a result, we are transformed on a more regular ongoing basis because yes, there's transformation from old to new at salvation, but he's talking here about a ongoing renewal of our minds. I'm sure many of y'all in here have, have iPhones or um, have, have whatever type of computer at home. I still don't fully understand how unplugging it and plugging it back in works. I'm sure I'm not alone. I can't be alone in that, right? But you, the first thing you're always told to do, well, have you turned it off and turned it back on again? My answer is usually yes, and it didn't work. I don't know exactly how that works. My very basic understanding of it is that over time, stuff gets wonky. I said basic. Stuff gets messed up in the way that the electronics work. Wires get crossed in weird software types of ways and unplugging it or turning it off and turning it back on again somehow resets it. It's essentially what we do as we go into the word. We've been impacted and influenced by so many things in the world around us based on people we talk to, things we read, things we watch. And we need to reset our minds, renew our minds back to the way that the software is supposed to be running. And even give it an upgrade from time to time so that we can see the world and think biblically in order to gain glory for God, to give him glory. It's not just a Bible knowledge, it's an applied Bible knowledge. Sometimes even the most knowledgeable of us can be uh, called, called out on not thinking biblically. If you're a parent of a child in the room, something like this may have happened to you before. You're about to do something or, or you have said something and your kid goes, but doesn't the Bible say? If it hasn't happened yet, it means you don't have a teenager. We're gonna go into some examples now of what thinking biblically looks like. But I wanna give you a bit of a disclaimer because I want you to understand my heart. In order for us to fully understand what this means and what this looks like moving forward, we need to look at some examples of what thinking biblically means in action. And my 
My goal, my heart behind this is not to nitpick certain topics that are just grinding on me and I wanna make sure everybody understands. My hope is to present a broad picture of what it looks like to think biblically and yet give some specific examples so that we can color in that picture. Because it's a countless list of examples. We can go through any environment you find yourselves in your life and we can talk about what it means to think biblically in the grocery store or in the school or at work or at Thanksgiving, whatever it is. But we're gonna look at five. And I say this because some of the things I'm about to say may offend some people. My goal is not to offend you with my opinion, but I'll leave it to God if his word offends. Because his word can be offensive if we are not in line with the thinking of scripture. We get offended. And it's happened to me before and I'm sure it'll happen to all of us at times in our life because we've started to think in a way that is not biblical and we need to reset our minds. So five examples. First of all, thinking biblically in terms of the church. It means thinking in a way that's being a member and not a consumer. Paul lays out in more than one place what, it, what the church is, uh, how the church should be viewed. And one of them is in Romans 12. If you skip a couple verses ahead to verse four, take a look. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. You see, the church is not a service. The church is not a building. It's not a location. The church is a people. The church is a body of believers. And those believers are different. We're not meant to be exact copies one of another. We're meant to be members of a body similar to how we have a head and an eye and a hand and a foot. And that's what Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 12. We have different roles. We have different strengths. We have different spiritual gifts. And the way we should be viewing the church and thinking biblically about the church is that we are members of the church and not consumers or customers of church. It's hard because a lot of our lives, we are customers. We're used to walking into Burger King and saying, I wanna have it my way. We're used to sending something back if it's not exactly as we ordered or you have different scales of that depending on the person, right? We're used to wanting it exactly in the package that we expect. And then we take that and all too often apply that same thought process to church. You see, if you're thinking biblically about church, you showed up this morning, not focused on what you can get, but on what you can give. Because what we're meant to do through our different giftings is build up the body together, members of one another, not focused on, did I get my parking spot? Did someone take my seat in my pew? I can't believe they made that casserole this week. I didn't get to hear my favorite song. If we're thinking that way, we're not thinking biblically about what the church is. The second one. In terms of wealth and success, Removing mine from our hearts. Removing mine from our hearts. Now, no, I'm not a communist. I'm not saying there's no such thing as personal property, okay? The personal property and laws around personal property are biblical. We're talking about the mine of our heart. We're talking about the way we view our wealth and success. 
Because all too often, we get caught up in the same way the world views it. And yet, just like I said, we are meant to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, which means we're not out to leave our own mark on this world so that I can be remembered. We're not out to make a difference for ourselves. We're not out to build up treasures for ourselves that we hold on to and it's mine, mine, mine. Doesn't mean we don't get blessed with wealth. Doesn't mean we don't strive to succeed because we should be, be striving to succeed in everything we do as working for the Lord. But it impacts how we view those things. Let's look at two passages. Both, we're looking at the, at the words of Jesus here. First, Matthew chapter six. It says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we see as our treasure is where our heart is. He has a similar kind of exchange. This is with a person that is asking for an inheritance. In Luke chapter 12, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man was breaking exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Now it's a parable, he didn't, he didn't know that, right? But, it's, uh, but you see this comparison here. He doesn't get denounced for having a good crop. This man shouldn't have worked so hard so that he didn't have this crop that he held on to. No, he gets denounced for his heart towards the crop, how he was thinking about the crop. And instead of being rich towards God, being rich and selfish and hoarding himself. You see, this life is simply a precursor for eternity. We should be living and acting in this life, not based on what we can gain here on earth, building up treasures on earth, but based on what's going to happen for eternity. This life is a blink in the eye compared to eternity. And thinking biblically about our lives right now means thinking with eternity in mind. Thinking about our wealth and success as a temporary manager because all we do is get to hold on to it for a little while and use it for what we can and then we pass it on. We don't take it with us. Because we want his glory. Removing mine from our hearts. The third one in terms of morality. This means accepting how we are all born with sinful desires that we choose to satisfy or not. 
See, thinking biblically in this world, especially in our current culture, it's important for us to have a biblical anthropology, a biblical understanding of who, of who mankind is, of who you and I are, and we're not good people. We're not at our core good and trying to get in touch with that somehow. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible describes us as being born in sinfulness, having a sinful nature. You don't have to teach a child to sin. It's ingrained, it's in there. We're born that way. We have all the tools we need to commit pretty much any sin imaginable from birth. And we choose whether or not to satisfy those desires. Take a look with me to James chapter one, verses 13 and 14. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. He draws a distinction between the sinful desire and engaging in it. You see, to me, the most glaring and obvious example of this, at least in, in my lifetime and what I've experienced, where the church gets this wrong is in terms of homosexuality. For some reason, we have allowed the world to control the argument. We have allowed the world to box the church in into a false dichotomy. What I mean by that is a false choice between two options. Either you're born this way or you choose this way. And as the world has gone further and further and further towards the born this way side to the point of saying, you can't even say what I'm doing is sinful because this is how I am made. Instead of, as we know as believers, that God says what sin is. It's grounded in him. The perfect righteousness that we don't, that we don't always hit. And when we miss that mark, that's called sin. That as the world goes further this way, the church, unfortunately, has gone further this way at times. I'm not speaking specifically of McGregor. I'm talking about the church in general. That so many have, have gone to the side of, you're not born that way, it's a choice. Basically making the argument that this is the only one that works this way. That somehow... The, uh, the sexuality aspect is one in which that's not part of a sinful desire we're born with. This is the exception. And you're, simply, and you're seeking after that and choosing that. No, thinking biblically about this subject, about morality, includes thinking biblically about who we are, how we are made in the image of God, but it's a distorted by sin version of the image of God. It's passed down generation to generation. And regardless of the sin, we are lured away and enticed by our own sinful desire and it gives birth to sin when we engage. And that can be mental engagement, that can be physical engagement in whatever that sin is. And yet, we've missed the mark on that one sometimes. So hopefully we can think more biblically about that one moving forward. We are all born this way. 
and we choose whether or not to satisfy our simple desires. The fourth one, in terms of parenting, holding biblical discipleship goals above worldly ones. Holding biblical discipleship goals above worldly ones. There is absolutely nothing wrong with desiring for your child to have a good family, to get up, grow up, get married, have kids, whatever that version of, a, of the family that you want your, your child to, um, to realize. Have a good career, you know, um, be able to pay for a house, you know, some of these worldly things, right? Worldly because I draw a distinction between that and the four measures we have for spiritual discipleship here. Thinking biblically, living missionally, giving generously, and loving sacrificially. We should be more focused on our spiritual discipleship of our children than their grades in school or their career path heading forward. Doesn't mean those things don't mean anything. It's a matter of priority. Deuteronomy 6 lays out, even going back all the way to the Old Testament and what's called the Shema, one of the important prayers in Judaism. <clears throat> it gives us a vision for this. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." It gives us a vision of what it looks like to raise up a child in the way they should go, which is probably the other verse that comes to your mind when we talk about this. It's Proverbs 22, six. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from him. Now, first of all, that's a proverb and not a promise. That doesn't mean that if you do everything right, your, your child's gonna end up perfect. It's a proverb, meaning it's something that's on average, this is what's going to happen. Right? If you train up a child going in this way, they're not going to depart from it. You train up a child in this way, they're not going to depart from it. So how are we training them up? Unfortunately, I think that proverb is too true. <laughs> Meaning, I think it's more true than we want to admit. That when we see our children grow up and go out into the world and value sports, wealth, career success above God. They may have learned it from us. They might be going exactly the way we've trained them. My encouragement to you as parents and to myself as a parent is to hold up those four measures as the measures of our discipleship in our home first and foremost. Because listen, if our child graduates high school and goes out into this world thinking biblically, living missionally, giving generously, and loving sacrificially, you're not going to be upset. You're not gonna go, oh man, we didn't spend enough time on homework. You're gonna be praising God because your child's living for God. It's a matter of priority. The fifth one, in terms of citizenship, 
valuing our heavenly citizenship above our earthly ones. Valuing our heavenly citizenship above our earthly ones. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The mentality of citizenship can, can not just mean just citizenship of a, of a country like America, but can go all the way to sports teams and colleges and Facebook groups, whatever it is that you get passionate about. <clears throat> Valuing our heavenly citizenship above earthly ones. We are about to go into a new election season. You could argue we already are. We already had primaries, that kind of thing. Things are about to get even more divisive than what, however divisive you think they are at the, at the moment. What does it look like for a Christian to think biblically in November and leading up to it? I think scripture makes it clear. We should care more about whether someone's believing in Jesus than whether they believe in our politician. We should care more about someone's eternal destination than their earthly ideology. We should interact with people in a way that you can still share the gospel with them after you talk to politics. Because if you can't, you may have gone astray. Now I understand a conversation has two sides. And to the best of our ability, we should live at peace with those around us. The way we interact with people matters. And if our mission as a church is to go forth and make disciples, it's disciples of Jesus, not something else. Like I said, with parenting, it doesn't mean the other things don't matter. It doesn't mean the other values don't matter. Someone's values are gonna be on the ballot and you're gonna vote the way you wanna vote based on what you value. But we are Christians who live in America. We're not Americans who go to church. How do we know we get there? Well, that one's an easy one. You don't, <clears throat> how do I get to mark this as completed? You don't. Even Paul said in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect but we can make progress towards making this more natural. As you dig into the word, as you renew your mind, you'll be transformed more and more into looking like Christ, into thinking like Christ. Or you'll be conformed to this world. So hopefully over time, we are transformed. We are renewed. I'll tell you one thing though. Just like we talked about earlier, going back to the beginning about that influence in our thinking, how it can be powerful, but it's fleeting. <clears throat> Sunday morning won't last your whole week. If this is the only time you focus on God or the things of God or his word, you will be conformed. I promise you, you will be conformed and not transformed. Because this reset of your mind 
will wane and it'll be reset by other things. So please don't let this be the only day this week that you are digging in and pursuing Christ. Let us leave this place and let it be a launching point in the beginning of us living for him this week and bring him glory this week.